welcome to today's live edition of Novak Now. This is Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, you can always follow me all week on Twitter, at JakeJakeNY is my handle, at JakeJakeNY. You can also find me on Facebook, just Jake Novak. And we always do these uh, programs. Every edition of Novak Now really gets into either a story you hadn't heard about, or we look at the stories in a way that you won't see anywhere else, especially in the regular news media, but also even in the Jewish news media. And you know, today I felt like last night I had a real, I had a real revelation as to how to tease this program to put it on my and I put it on my Twitter and I put it on my Facebook and I put it on my LinkedIn and I sent it out to some people. And if this imagine, you know, imagine if I had one of those television announcer voices and I said something like this, you know, this is what this program was going to be about. And I said that in 1864, Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, was saved from being killed by a train. And the man who rescued him, his last name was Booth, B-O-O-T-H. 100% true. And if you want to find out all about that story, wait a few minutes because I will tie it all into what this program is about. And that is, sadly, sadly, and I mean this for real, there is absolutely no denying right now that the United States is in the midst of a political and cultural civil war. It is a civil war any way that you can define it. If you, unless you define it as standing armies shooting at each other on a battlefield, but as anybody who knows their American history, the history of other countries knows, the wars, the cultural and political wars begin much before that happens. Hopefully we can avoid that. Not every civil war, by the way, ends up in a carnage like our civil war here in the United States where half a million people died. So let's hope to avoid that for crying out loud. Uh, but we are in the midst of a cultural and political civil war in this country. And I don't say that to rile people up because I really wish it weren't the case. I, I, I find most of what people are fighting about to be somewhat ridiculous uh, in that I do believe there are some common sense ways to take care of a bunch of the things that are dividing us. But there are opportunists on every side who will not let it go at the common sense solution. And what's happened now is that you've poisoned anyone who feels at all politically active in this country or culturally active to the point where they cannot accept certain norms for all people. And I'm going to get into the details of that. The first thing is, let's talk about just a couple of the scenes. I mean, I could also, the title of this edition of Novak Now and the Nachum Siegel Network could also just be scenes from the Civil War in America today. Because we had a few scenes in that Civil War this week. Uh, obviously, there are scenes in this every single day in reaction to the Trump presidency, which was a major moment in the Civil War, a major result of the Civil War. Without a Civil War, without a political and cultural Civil War in America, Donald Trump could never have been elected. A huge percentage of the people who voted for Donald Trump would not have voted for him or would not have voted at all if they didn't feel there needed, they, there needed to be a pushback on the other side in the cultural and political civil wars. Now, to oversimplify it, we could say it's blue America versus red America. It's a little bit of an oversimplification because a lot of the people who are fighting the civil war aren't really voting Republican or Democrat in that sense. They might be in any given election, but that's not really their main agenda. Which is why, by the way, both the Democratic and the Republican parties are really kind of dead. They're both dead. They don't really have leadership. Trump is obviously the, the, the nominal leader of the Republican Party because he's a Repu member of the Republican Party and he's the president of the United States. But the Republican Party establishment still doesn't really know what to make of him, isn't really ready to march in lockstep with him, which is okay. They don't have to do that. But the problem is not so much Donald Trump. The problem is that before he came along, they had lost connection with the voters. 
Donald Trump barely beat Hillary Clinton in the presidential election. He won by a good margin in the Electoral College. We know that. But it was a close election. We know that. But the primaries, here was a complete outsider completely destroying the establishment Republican Party. That was the real result of the election that was undeniable by anyone. And that had a lot to do with the Civil War. It was almost as if the people fighting the Civil War were dismissing their generals in the Republican Party who, were, who they had hoped would lead them. But getting away from Trump just for a second, we had some interesting scenes in the Civil War this past week. And I think the most interesting scene in that Civil War, a skirmish in that Civil War, was the New York Times hiring to their editorial board this woman, Sarah Jong, who ostensibly is a tech reporter, but she's much more famous as a cultural commentator. And it didn't take more than just a few moments for people checking up after the announcement of this hire to see that she had tweeted hundreds of times very vicious anti-white, anti-male tweets. They were really, really, in, they were absolutely inexcusable. They were horrific. A lot of them called for violence, called for genocide, incredible stuff. And the New York Times decided to stand by her. They came up with this ridiculous excuse that her responses in Twitter were actually responses to people who had attacked her. Although if you look at the tweets, a lot of them come out of nowhere. They are not responses to anybody or anything that we know of. Uh, it was a bogus excuse. And they just said, well, you know, she regrets it, and uh, we're going to continue to, to hire her. And, and really, across the board, nobody believed that excuse. I don't think even liberal people believe that excuse. And I call that a scene in the Civil War because what we've seen in America, and this is just one small example, and I'm going to get into some more serious ones. What we're seeing now is, like in any war, when somebody from your team commits a crime, however horrific, including a war crime, you excuse it because they're on your team. There is no right or wrong. There's just our side and their side. So the mistake that a lot of people make who either aren't recognizing the civil war in America or who aren't ready to really address it properly is they go after the hypocrisy angle. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy, the same people who said that Roseanne Barr should be fired from ABC and she was for making one tweet that was, you know, she said was accidentally racist, who knows. Uh, the same people who are saying that are now defending Sarah Jung, including the New York Times, yada, yada, yada. And they go after this hypocrisy angle, which, by the way, folks, very big waste of time. Politics, by definition, even when we're not in a civil war, is hypocrisy. In other words, you have to, to govern, accept certain evils or things that you wouldn't otherwise accept in your opponents if you're going to move along. If you're going to have a political party or a government with a bunch of people supporting you, you will necessarily have to overlook some of the negative category qualities of some of the people supporting you. That's how it works in a democracy. So going after the hypocrisy angle is kind of like saying two plus two is four. It's, it's understandable. It's not great, but it's a waste of, of time and argument because that's not really the point here. The point here is civil war. The people who think that Roseanne should be fired, it's not because of what she said or did. It's because she's on the other side and she outed herself as being on the red side or the conservative side or the non-politically correct side, whatever side you want to call it, whatever name you want to give it. She outed herself that way with that tweet about Valerie Jarrett a couple of months ago. And so she, they, they support her firing. One of their own people tweeting something much more viciously, much more premeditatedly racist, and much, 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 much more often is accepted because she is on their team. It's very, very simple. Sad, but simple. And that is how you know it's a civil war. Don't go after the hypocrisy. Don't go after the name calling. Don't go after the crying. It's not 
going to get you anywhere. And also, it just, it just states the obvious. What really needs to be drilled home to the American people and to those who observe us from outside this country is that we are in a political and cultural civil war where there is no common ground, really, that can be hoped to be met uh, under almost any circumstances. Now, this has a lot to do with the BDSing, I call it, the, the demonization of anyone in the Trump administration. For example, we, we found people who are just minor officials in the Trump administration for a short time. They left the Trump administration, and now they get other jobs elsewhere, and people re re resign from that position because this person was once on the other team or was once on the headquarters of the other team. Again, this isn't about, and then, and then again, people will go after hypocrisy and they say, oh, but you didn't resign when so-and-so from this other administration was in there. Again, that's the hypocrisy argument. Don't make that argument. Make the observation instead that we are in a civil war. So, of course, the Sarah Jung hiring, I, I would urge everyone just to, I wouldn't say you have to accept it. You don't have to do it with a smile on your face. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is understand that the teams in the civil war are very well defined and they are going to act accordingly. So instead of calling out the New York Times for hypocrisy, call them out for being dishonest by omission. The New York Times should say it is a Democratic Party, left-wing, politically correct-wing, blue side of the Civil War newspaper. And during the Civil War, we had pro-Union newspapers, mostly in the North, of course, and pro-Confederacy newspapers, most, most, mostly in the South. After the Civil War, you know, have you ever seen the names of some of the old newspapers? The Arizona Republican, the Arkansas Democrat? It's not, an, it's not a coincidence. These were parties that were marketed to Republicans and Democrats, respectively. We've had that before in this country. We certainly have it online now. There's no different. It's not, this is not new. But what we, I would like is for some honesty. The New York Times should call itself the New York, the New York Blue Times, or instead of all the news that's fit the fit the print, it could just be the the Clarion Call of Blue America, of left wing political politically correct America, whatever they want to call themselves. They can even spin it to True America, whatever they want to call it. They can call it whatever they want. But just as they make it clear that they are are on a a particular team in their name. They should not pretend to be unbiased arbiters. Look, look, folks, I've been in the television news media and in the news media for 25 years. There's no such thing as unbiased news media. It's just it's a joke. We shouldn't ask for it. It doesn't make sense. A human being cannot be unbiased. That's how we survive in the wild or in the world. It doesn't make any sense. You try to be as fair as you can. And if you can't do that under any objective circumstances, then declare yourself a writer, a warrior for one side or the other. And let's just see if, you, if you're persuade, more persuasive than the other side. Go for it. You know, the, the Union, one of the many reasons why the Union won the Civil War is not only because they had a better army and they were more equipped, but they were able to win over some of the powers that be, not only in this country, but outside of the country. They had a stronger argument, not only against slavery, but in favor of a more federalist system. Period. So anyway... That is just one example. I, th I thought that that was the biggest skirmish in the Civil War this week. But there have been others. Earlier in the week, and this is a story you probably didn't hear that much about, because it didn't get as much attention, although at one point it was getting close to that. The man who has directed the last two, you know, there's only been two, there's going to be a third one, uh, uh, editions of the Marvel comic series Guardians of the Galaxy. His name is James Gunn, G-U-N-N. -N. And it turned out that somebody found that he had tweeted not once, not twice, but I kid you not, 10,000 times, more than 10,000 tweets discussing his interest in pedophilia, discussing and having conversations online with a pedophile who is now behind bars for pedophilia, discussing the ins and outs of how he likes it, stuff like that. Now, 
you can say it was all a joke, but I'm saying again, let me say this again, 10,000 tweets of an explicit nature about pedophilia, 10,000 with known pedophiles. And the Guardians of the Galaxy, along with a lot of other productions, have children on the set and children in the production. Now I ask you, would you put your child under the care of somebody like that? I know I wouldn't. I think most people wouldn't. But let me ask you another question. What if I told you with the person who found all these tweets? What if I told you the person who did this exposing? What if I told you this person who brought this to the attention of Disney, which owns the Marvel Comics uh, Studios? What if I told you that person was a right-wing, sometimes called alt-right, although I, don't, I think he's just a very good journalist. His name is Mike Cernovich. Well, if it didn't change everything for you, good for you. But for Hollywood, it changed everything. Hollywood closed ranks around James Gunn. All kinds of big stars and members of the cast couldn't wait to defend him, couldn't wait to say it was wrong. Now, by the way, Disney did um, let, him, let him go. There is a large consensus of people who believe that he will be rehired when this quiets down a little bit more. But let's give Disney credit for letting him go. I think they did the right thing. I would do, the, I would do that in that situation. I would like to think that wh whatever side I'm on in the cultural civil wars, I would have let him go. But like I said, after they let him go, there was a massive call, you know, circling of the wagons around James Gunn, a big attack on Mike Cernovich because it was a right-wing person who caught him. And right-wing people who catch people, especially those people who are on the left, are not to be supported in any way. And incidentally, James Gunn is on the left. He's a left-wing political warrior. And guess what? He was one of the people calling for Roseanne Barr to be fired when her one tweet came to light about Valerie Jarrett. Again, your knee-jerk reaction, right, is to say hypocrisy, hypocrite, this guy is a hypocrite. He was going to say that Roseanne is fired, and he, now he's upset that he's fired for much worse. Again, you're right, it's correct, but that is a waste of time. Understand here that this is a civil war, and somebody from their army, in their minds, someone from the, from the right-wing army took somebody out from the left-wing army, and that can never be accepted, no matter how terrible. Now I want to ask you a question. How can society, how can society function when the idea of right and wrong, even in the extreme cases of child molestation or supporting child molestation, matters not based on evidence of the crime, but on who is doing the accusing and who has been accused? And not based on their credibility, but based on what political team they're on. The, the simple answer is that you cannot survive that way. And I'm going to get in, into a, a few other examples. You also had this weekend a picture coming to light of Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey posing in a, what looked like you know, some kind of cute picture with a bunch of anti-Israel activists with a big sign that was critical of Israel about how all the wall should come down from Mexico to Palestine as if the wall around you know, separating Israel from the territories is, is some kind of immigration thing. It's got nothing to do with that. It's a security wall. Of course, for the United States, it would be the same if we really built something more like that, but that's a different discussion. And Cory Booker is going around now and saying, oh, I didn't read the sign or I didn't understand the sign. I didn't know what I was doing. And of course, again, the hypocrisy calls came out saying, well, you know, if, if a right winger had stood with a bunch of Klansmen or really anti-black groups and had the sign, they, no one would have accepted that excuse. Everyone would have laughed him out of the room. And even the Republicans would probably have kicked him out. I tend to believe that's somewhat true, <laughs> even though I said like we're in a cultural civil war. I happen to believe that the right wing part of it, the, re the Republican part of it, isn't harsh 
uh, isn't as is is willing to be a little bit more harsh on its own side than the, than the left is. But it's it's still a civil war, and I'm not going to give anyone a complete pass. The Republicans and the right wingers have given plenty of their people a pass about stupid things in the past. So it's really not about total exoneration here. But again, another call for hypocrisy when really it is another example of the civil war in America. You can do no wrong if someone from your team, if you are on the same team and people see that you've done something wrong, it doesn't matter. You're on their team. Cory Booker's a Democrat. He's become one of the most staunch and emotional and over-the-top anti-Trump voices. So he's going to get support from his team no matter what he does. This is nothing. Posing with the sign about Palestine and, and, and the wall, I mean, that's nothing to them. They don't care. It doesn't matter that New Jersey has a lot of Jewish voters, a lot of Jewish Democrats who voted for him. They don't care. They don't care. It's not about hypocrisy, guys. It's not. It's about their team and your team. Again, you're listening to Novak now here on the Nahum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak talking about the civil war in America, making the case that the really is <laughs> that there is one. It, it, the evidence is over, overwhelming. Overwhelming. Now, I'm hearing some of you just in my, in my mind's eye, I'm seeing it. Some of you making the case that, well, this is always the way it's been. There's always been this hypocrisy because of the civil type war in America. It's not any worse or any better, yada, yada, yada. I have to disagree with you. I have to disagree with you for a couple of reasons. One is we have historical evidence, at least in my lifetime, my adult lifetime even, that that wasn't the case. There's a couple of examples that absolutely positively would not be duplicated now because of the civil war that's raging. The first one is the, the candidacy and eventual presidency of Bill Clinton. Now, for those of you who remember Bill Clinton for real, I'm talking about people who really follow the 1992 election, the 90, 1991 months going into the 1992 election, people who really remember that candidacy. Let's remember where the Democratic Party was at that time. Going into the 1992 election, the Democrats had just lost four of the last five presidential elections by massive landslides. Richard Nixon got 500 plus electoral votes in 1972. Ronald Reagan got more than 400 in 1980, more than 500 in 1984. And George H.W. Bush got well over 400 in 1988. Those are routes. Those are taking it to the whipping shed. Those are big wins, big losses. In 1976, the only presidential election in that time period that I'm talking about that the Democrats won, it was a squeaker. Jimmy Carter beat Gerald Ford by a squeaker. A couple of states, one state, there, there were a number of states where had only one of them gone the other way, Ford would have been president, would have won a full you know, term in office. And a lot of people believe that a couple more weeks of that campaign, if that vote had been held a couple more weeks later, Ford would have won. You might recall, of those of you who are a little bit older than I am, although I remember this election pretty well myself, even though I was only about six, uh, Jimmy Carter came out of the convention with a 33-point lead in the polls. 33 points! It was almost all gone by election day. He only won by a couple of... Percentage points in the popular vote, very, very slim victory. So here comes Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton isn't thinking about civil war. And Bill Clinton isn't thinking about political correctness. He's thinking about, how the hell am I going to win this thing? And he makes the incredible leap of faith. I hope you heard the sarcasm. He makes the incredible leap of faith to say, hey, wait a minute. Maybe some of these Republican ideas are really popular. I think I should adopt one or two of them. Or at least find one or two of them that I've already supported as my, in my many years of governor of Arkansas and tell the public that, hey, I, I'm not some crazy lefty Democrat. I, I'm like you. I believe in X, Y, and Z. What were X, Y, and Z? Well, first of all, it was the most important part of his platform, which was a very pro-business, pro-economic platform. 
Bill Clinton wanted to make sure that no one could ever label him with the socialist, con you know, communist type label that so many Democrats had had to choke on over the years. So he made it really, really clear that he was trying to be pro-business. He and Vernon Jordan worked very hard to get corporate sponsorship for the 1992 Democrat convention in Ma at Madison Square Garden in New York, making it a very big deal, getting sponsors like Miller Beer and a few other people to kind of sponsor it. That was a big move for them. So that was part one. Part two was very, very strong in favor of the death penalty. You remember that Michael Dukakis in the previous presidential election in 1988 was painted as soft on crime, soft on criminals, soft on convicted murderers. And Bill Clinton wanted to make it clear that he was pro-death penalty, so much so that he made this big stunt of, quote, suspending his presidential campaign so he could go back to Arkansas to, quote, observe an execution of a death row inmate. You know, not like he's, he was needed there. I mean, I don't really know what he was going to do necessarily. It was kind of a joke, but it was a brilliant political move, in my opinion, because he was able to dr dramat you know, dramatize something that was going to happen anyway. He was able to cash in on something that was going to happen anyway and made everyone in the country talk about how he was pro-death penalty. And then when he became elected president, he followed through on a couple of things. The biggest one being his signing of the Personal Responsibility Act, which was their fancy name for the welfare to work, the, the work fair type bill that he and Newt Gingrich worked out where people had work requirements to get certain forms of welfare, which also went along with the big capital gains tax cut, which went back to the first thing I talked about, which was his pro-business stance. So here I had an example of how we weren't at civil war at that time. 25 years ago in America, not only were we not at civil war, but Bill Clinton as a winning Democratic Party candidate was ready, willing, and able, and knowing how crucial it was to adopt the platform, some parts of the platform of the Republican Party. Why? Because they had won a bunch of elections by a lot. And he knew that the American people were in a certain place. Now I ask you, what winning platform of the Trump election, what winning platform of maybe even the George H.W. or W. Bush platforms would the Democrats adopt today? Did they adopt the Bush tax cuts when Barack Obama was president? Well, reluctantly. They tried to get rid of the, all of them. The Republicans got control of Congress when the original Bush tax cuts expired. So Obama, President Obama really didn't have a choice, but he talked about how he really regretted any continuation of those tax cuts. And of course, they, he made the capital gains tax a lot higher than it had been in previous years, even since Clinton had, had cut them. So he, he not only rebuffed Bush, but he rebuffed his own fellow Democrat. Because by the time Barack Obama was president, we were just about at that full civil war. There wasn't going to be any cross-platform handshake across the aisle. There wasn't going to be anything like that. And, and there's just so many more examples of this, for just on economic policy. You know, just a couple of years ago, Paul Krugman, who is supposedly the economic editorial writer for the New York Times, he won a Nobel Prize in economics. He doesn't always write about economics, but he, he often does. And just a couple of years ago, he called for unilateral tariffs on China. He wanted the federal government and the Obama administration at the time to slap China with a bunch of tariffs. And he wrote a whole column about how that would be a great idea. President Trump does it. He's against it. It's stupid. Again, <laughs> the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, you're a hypocrite. Why didn't you check your own comments? It's got nothing to do with that because now we are in civil war, folks. And when the other side does something that can be attacked, it will be attacked. Even if it was your own position a year ago, a month ago, or a day ago. Because that's what happens in the civil war. Just like in a war, a sniper shoots a bunch of officers and it's considered to be a war crime or whatever it is. No, the other side will do it too, even though, even as they're complaining about that action by the other side. That's what's going on here. We have 
no norms other than my side versus your side. Can you imagine any Republican or Democrat saying, not publicly in an election, hey, I like that position. That's a good position. That's, that's what I want. Now, folks, in case you haven't guessed, the American society or in any society cannot continue to function this way. We are just a hair's breadth away from people excusing murders and excusing even more horrific crimes because they are on their political side. We're, we're probably already there in some cases. We've certainly seen some violence. We saw the Bernie Sanders supporter shoot Steve Scalise and try to kill even more Republicans at the baseball game outing last year. We've seen Antifa protests. We've seen Charlottesville. We've seen things like this where, where violence has, has, has spread out. Violence to me, however, as, I, as I've tried to say, is not exactly the best sign of a civil war for a couple of reasons. One is, let's not forget the forest for the trees. Violence of any kind in this country, including crime, is way, way down. Now, there are some pockets of trouble, like the south side of Chicago, like parts of Baltimore, a few other places in this country where crime really hasn't changed at all, in some cases has gotten worse. But overall, crime in this country is so dramatically down, especially here in, in the New York area. So dramatically down. So when I take a look at violence and look at violence, I don't consider violence to be the main point here. Thank God we're not at that point. But that doesn't mean we're not in a civil war, and we shouldn't have to wait for it. Because, again, society cannot function when child molesters or people who consort with child molesters or people who commit violence are going to be excused or condemned only depending on who is doing the condemning and who is doing the accepting and whose team that person is on or we know to be or we assume he's on or she is on. And if that sounds like the famous Abraham Lincoln quote, a house divided cannot stand, then you're right. A house divided cannot stand. The country right now is in full civil war mode and we cannot get things accomplished. A good policy that has some aspect of it that can be attacked will be attacked no matter how good the policy is. The unity that we saw in this country after 9-11, I have no hesitation in saying could not be repeated today if the same thing, God forbid, happened again. If there were another attack just like 9-11, we would split into parties and split into our sides and blame each other much faster than we joined together in 2001, and I have no doubt about that. None. Sadly. Because again, a house divided cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln. So as I speak about Abraham Lincoln, let me bring back to the little tease that I sent out online and also at the beginning of the show. Let me say it one more time. In 1864, President Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, was almost killed by a train. He was rescued by a man whose last name was Booth. Yes, the man who re rescued Robert Todd Lincoln as he fell into off the platform, everyone's nightmare for those of you who take the subway, the Long Island River, that nightmare that you'll fall into the track off the platform, happened to Robert Todd Lincoln. And Edwin Booth, the actor Edwin Booth, not John Wilkes Booth, but Edwin Booth picked him up by the collar and saved his life. Edwin Booth was John Wilkes Booth's brother. He loved his brother, but they disagreed about the Civil War. Edwin Booth was a unionist and a supporter of Lincoln. And Edwin Booth, when he pulled Robert Todd Lincoln off of the track and away from the train and saved his life, did not know who, the name of the person he had saved. He didn't know he was Robert Todd Lincoln. This was in the days of Secret Service people following around the, the president's family. Even the president wasn't really followed around by Secret Service that much, as we know. He didn't know that. He just did the right thing. Edwin Booth. And the Booth Theater in Broadway is named after Edwin, not John Wilkes Booth. So if you have Southern tourists coming and saying, oh, are you named a theater? No, we named it after Edwin Booth, okay? Edwin. 
I'm not here to praise Edwin Booth for saving Robert Todd Lincoln because he didn't know it was Robert Todd Lincoln that he saved. The point is, is that he saw someone in trouble and he didn't think about his credentials. He didn't think, oh, is this a Confederate supporter in the track? Let him die. Or is this a union supporter? Let me help him. No, he just instinctively grabbed him by the collar and saved his life. That's an example of, a, of something that can keep a country going. Not only keep a life going, but keep a country going. And of course, the horrific irony is Edwin Booth would read in the paper less than a year later that his brother had assassinated the president, the father of the man he had saved. I mean, what an unbelievable heartbreak that was for him. And that destroyed their family even more. But the point being, Edwin Booth didn't care about the real civil war in every sense of the word that was blaring in the world and just saved the guy. We've got to get there in America. I think we might still be there at that point, even though we're fighting on so many other levels. I think that a lot of New Yorkers would come and rush and save somebody whether they knew what side he was on or not. But we've got to get there and make sure that we stay there. That's the only way we might survive this thing. And then we can talk about ending the Civil War politically and culturally. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now. I hope to speak to you again next week.